Welcome to Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today, we're working with an artist who has done work all over the country. I first met her in San Francisco. And right now, she's based in Chicago, Illinois. We're going to talk a little bit about her activities, both in the past, now, and in the future. And I'd like to welcome Irene Chow. Thank you for being with us today, Irene. Thank you so much, Jamie. I feel like I've known you for as long as I've been dancing, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's what happens when you get old. <laughs> but that's me, you know? Everyone says, oh my goodness, you were there at my christening. <laughs> well, pretty much. I mean, I've known you since like my first, I guess, a professional company job with with Enrico Labayan. That's yes. when I met you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so crazy to think about. Well, you know, one of the things that I like to do when I talk to artists in this kind of format is just find out a little bit about them, where, where they're from, what their family was like, and how they found their way into dance. Can you talk a little bit about that, Irene? Oh, my gosh. I'll try. So, well, I think you can relate to this, maybe, Jamie, because, like, I always wanted to dance. I really cannot remember a day in my life when I didn't want to. And I don't have any idea where that comes from because it was not at all encouraged in my family. Um, it's not the family business? It is not. And and also, yeah, I'm like, I don't have any... I don't have any relatives who are dancers. I just literally can't remember a time when I didn't want to do it. And also I was actually discouraged from doing it. You know, growing up, I had friends who danced. And of course, back then, especially when you're growing up, I think for a lot of people, like dancing means at that age ballet. And I really wanted to learn. And I had friends who would take class and I would ask them to show me things and I would just kind of copy them. But it wasn't really going to, like, I never went to class on my own. Where are you from? I'm from, well, that's also a little complicated question because I was born in Canada, but I didn't spend enough time there to like remember it. (laughs) And I basically grew up in California, Southern California, and a lot of my extended families in the Bay Area, which is, I will also just close that window. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. A lot of my extended families in the Bay Area, which is why I've kind of cycled in and out of there. At the time that I met you, I had just done my first job after graduating. I was working abroad in Hong Kong and I had a really bad time there. So I came back and I was living then with my aunts. One of my aunts lives in Berkeley and she's my father's older sister. And she's actually housed me many a time, usually in times where I've been at loose ends. Yeah. And she, she, she's someone who loves art, but I think I think growing up, I never had much art. It was, it was very implied that I would become a medical doctor, which I didn't do. So... So you come from a family of doctors? Uh, well, actually, it's strange because neither of my parents is a doctor. <laughs> what, 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 what do they do? Um, my dad studies econometrics, and my mother was a computer programmer, some computer programmer, some kind. But like, I think like most, they were they were first generation here. Mm-hmm. So I think like many second generation. Asian Americans, I was very much encouraged to pursue medicine. Well, you know, I, I guess I have something in common with your dad because I, I come from the economics world. That's why I majored oh, in, you do. In, in, uh, in college. But, it, you know, it, it didn't stick. I went off into other things. 
So what, what did you end up doing? You said you were working in Hong Kong. What was your profession there? Oh my God. I mean, it didn't even make sense. I was working, I was working in a library, I guess. I mean, some of what I did makes sense to me now. I was like developing programs related to the humanities. It's not, it's not very important. All right. Well, so you were working in Hong Kong. You came back to the United States. You come from a family that did not encourage arts. How were you able to uh, get your training in that? Oh, yeah. I did work study, which is something you know all about (laughs) at Lines, right? Yeah. I didn't do work study at Lines, though. I did work study at a variety of places, including including Berkeley Ballet Theater. I'd done my undergrad at Berkeley. And I also, I took dance classes at Berkeley. So I took modern dance there. But what I was starting to say, and I didn't say, was that like my first dance classes were because like many, well, my my parents would send me to Chinese school on Saturdays, which is like three hours a week. Mm -hmm. Like for two hours, you study language and for one hour, you get an an elective. So I always picked dance as my elective. So I had like an hour a week of dance training (laughs) in like Chinese folk dance, I guess it was basic. I think it was Chinese folk dance. I didn't really, it was usually geared towards doing like a performance at the Chinese New Year celebration. How, how early on did you start your Chinese classes as far or start Chinese school? Does that start like when you're six, seven years old? Well, I was, let me see. I started Chinese school late because I was always like behind a few grades there. I mean, I think I was probably 14 when I was taking this, when, when I had dance as an elective. And it's mostly folkloric cultural dance that you were doing, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, every year there would be, like, it was very much geared towards, like, we're going to do this performance at the Chinese Year Celebration, which is usually January, February of the year. So every year, to me, it was actually, and it's funny, you're helping me put this together in my mind. Often it was very prop-oriented dancing. So, like, the dance that we would do that year would be the dance with the silk fan, or the dance that we would do that year would be, like, the dance with the whips, or the dance that we would do that year would be the dance with the drum or something. Like there was always like kind of an object involved, which I never, I hadn't really thought about that in relation to like why objects continue to be kind of something I connect to and <laughs> often make part of my work. Well, certainly it uh, must have taught you, you know, how to, how to move, how to use your body, how to uh, follow the music, how to stay in time with everyone else that you're dancing with. You're dancing in a group that certainly had that value. Yeah, but I was like so bad at some of it. Like I wasn't, you know, and also there were never, I don't recall a single year where we had boys in the class and I was always cast as a boy in the dances because... Because I was taller, it's it's funny. I I hardly ever think about this anymore. It was like it was quite unusual. Well, the whole folklore thing, and and especially using uh, children and teens to perform is certainly a whole can of worms in and of itself in every culture. Yeah. So you you were doing these folklore dance. You went off to uh, off to college, and you were taking classes in college. Yeah. I well, I was so I was. <laughs> I was double majoring in English and biology and like dancing was not a degree at all. I like took the technique classes and then um, I, t- I did work study because mm-hmm. I was, I was very determined. <laughs> I was very determined to become a ballet dancer, which is like crazy to me now. But like at the time I was like very, I, I believed it could happen probably because I did not actually know what ballet training entails. Mm-hmm. So you started uh, your ballet training basically at, 16, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. Well, uh, you certainly come a long way having seen uh, 
your work with Enrico Levayan, which we'll get to soon. But just sort of leveraging off of that, being so determined that you were able to be sort of the autodidact that you are concerning uh, concerning dance. I think maybe a determination is a big part of your of your practice. I think that must be true for everyone who has any kind of career as an independent artist. It's hard, as you know, right? Oh, it's, it is tough. It's kind of the only main ingredient. The main ingredient is probably determination. <laughs> you know, it's like beyond any other thing. Did you want to do it? So you've told me a little bit about your training and how the uh, route was kind of circuitous. But you had to have found someone who was really influential and solidified your your movement and technique. Are, are there people here in San Francisco or elsewhere who were responsible for that? Oh, I've had so many really important teachers, but probably the first one was Augusta Moore. I used to come and take her class in the city all the time. I think she was really absolutely fundamental to to how I approach movement, partly because ballet, which is, I think, very often taught from the outside in, that is in terms of like shapes, or I guess also as someone who basically started in open classes, I was often imitating shapes or imitating what people were doing. Augusta really encouraged people to think about what they were feeling. And and I think always to be reevaluating those sensations and reevaluating the approach. I felt like every day in her class was sort of like breaking everything down and starting over again, which I, I, I still think about that when I go to class. Well, she certainly had a sense of generosity in the way that she approached her students and, and everyone in her life. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think her loss was greatly felt by many people. A lot of people really do miss Augusta Moore. Yeah, I, I happened to take her class December. Oh my gosh, what year was that? That must have been December 2018. Is that right? Just before she passed? Yeah, it was It was not long before she passed. Um, it was, I think she was... I think she passed away in August. I'm not sure. But I remember um, not even knowing she was sick then. I was just in the Bay Area for the holidays. And, and I was like, I'm going to take one class. And that and it's Augusta's class. Yeah, it was. Um, I actually, this is the first time I'm talking about it or her since that time because it was such a shock. Yes. Yeah. Ha- having known her for a long time, she has, she has had several bouts before she uh, she finally succumbed. Yeah. So it, it, it was, she, she was a very special person. I'm, I'm glad that you found her into your life. Yeah, me too. So you said you wanted to be a, a, a ballet dancer. Um, yeah. What was your concept of ballet? Was it the, you know, the classical white ballets of... Uh, it's so weird because I wasn't even taken to watch much dance growing up, right? I don't know why. I just like had this, like I didn't, I, I have no idea what my concept of it was. Like, I think, of course, it's hard not to see ballet in Western culture. Like. If you think of dancing, you probably think of ballet. If you see any dancing on television or online or anywhere, it's probably ballet. Um, and I know I, re- I do know, although I don't have any memory of it. When I was growing up, I definitely went to see one of my friends in the Nutcracker one year. Yeah, it's. I think there's a certain level of blindness to like why I wanted to do anything. Like I just felt sure that it was something that I should do. I think that's something that also extends into my writing because I write about dance. And like when I started, which was also in San Francisco, for me, it was like, 
I really had this curiosity about something I didn't get to experience very much. Like I would see, I I mean, it wasn't that I never went to dance performances before I started writing about dance. That doesn't make any sense at all. But like, like most people, I think I would go to like a few shows a year, like the shows my friends were in, or if there's a show I really wanted to see, I would buy a ticket or something. But like getting to write about dance was a way for me to watch dance every week and to see what was getting made and to get, see what was getting made by not just big companies, but also people that I think of now as my peers. Is that fair? But like, oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, but like, so for me, that was like really an education. And I think that's why I've had like a pretty different approach to writing about dance, which I didn't realize was a different approach until, <laughs> until I got to know more about who, who usually does it and why and what kinds of things they say. Because I think I definitely went in. I remember at the very beginning being like, well, I'm totally not qualified to do this job. So I'm not going to, it's like really not my job to say whether anything's good or bad because I literally don't know. So I thought of, I thought of it and I still think of it as a way of like observing an event that has happened and marking a moment in history, which every performance is. More as a reporter and a correspondent than as a critic. Yeah, maybe. Except I also didn't like train as a reporter either. So like <laughs> it was it was very much like figuring it out as I go along. But and like I would say much like dancing, which I always wanted to do and probably had my own way of doing without the training for it. Like I always was a writer too. And of course I have been to school and I know how to write an essay and, but like I hadn't specifically trained. I'd never done any journalism before writing for SF Weekly really. So even the idea that like, that I would have to pitch a story before writing it, like that had never occurred to me. I think a lot of it is just, just, just writing from the heart more than anything else and understanding uh, what it is you're seeing and just telling people. I'm not sure that a journalism degree necessarily is uh, something you may need to be able to report on anything. You just need to have your eyes and uh, an intelligent mind, I think. Well, I do think there is, there is, there is something to be said about reading a lot, writing a lot, um, the practice of it. That is, that is an essential training. But like, I don't know, in the same way that like sort of maybe after the fact, like after after it became clear that I could not be a ballet dancer, it still seemed important to me to like go to class and practice those things. I still go to ballet class. I still think it's very important to try to learn as much as I can, even though I will never be a ballet dancer. And it's unclear to me exactly what those forms have to do with what I would ever do. There's something about the practice that I think is very important. So you uh, spent time in school taking class, started coming over to Berkeley Ballet Theater. Uh, I remember meeting you at Lyme. Yeah. Uh, that type of training for you, I mean, how, you seem to have progressed very, very quickly. Was that the determination or was it just an innate talent? Uh, okay, well, I don't have no idea what that means because I, I do feel like I tried to learn as much as I could, but also there are some things that I know now, which I didn't know then I couldn't learn or like, and I think those are the things that are talents, right? Like, I think like, you know, it's so, it's so, I don't know if this is something that I could describe about myself. By now, I think I've put many years into my training and, and still I know like every day, every day, or like whenever I go to class, there's, there's the struggle to learn, but I, I still somehow believe I can. <laughs> 
I think I think I think that's. But well, it seems know. like that, that struggle is a joy for you and not a torture. I think it depends on which side of it you're on. Like I think if if I, th- I think if my goals had never shifted, like if I really still at, at this time was like I really need to be a ballet dancer, my heart would be crushed. But like especially, I think I learned I learned a lot dancing in the Bay Area, partly because of what I was allowed to do or chosen to do which not, might not have been the work that I sought out for myself I think I like I don't know I, I don't know where to categorize myself but I, I know that I participated in and I watched people make a lot of experimental work I think especially of kinetic arts and what I learned dancing so this is a Diane and a yeah, yeah exactly like I mean Diane was like my hero when I was dancing, um, like I didn't dance for Enrico for very long. And um, although it was, it was a really important time, like doing, doing his work was like immense training for me in all the ways. And also one of the people that I watched all the time was Diani. And like we're referring to Diani Lopez da Silva. Exactly. A local dancer here in San Francisco uh, from Brazil. And also a contemporary dancer and Kinetic Arts is a, uh, a dance company that mixes technology and dance in very interesting ways, uh, thanks to the genius of Wei Dong Yang. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, working with them taught me so much. Like, I think before I worked with them, I was definitely not comfortable with improvising. And almost, I don't know if it is still true, but like, when I was working with them, everything we did was improvised. Or like devised, often devised. And I think discovering the freedom of that. Well, she's a strong advocate of that way of making work. Uh, I think at some point in the future, we might have her on the show to to talk a little more about that as well. Yeah, yeah. So how'd you find your way into Enrico's group? That was like completely by accident. So, So when I came back from Hong Kong, I think the first day... I took class. It was at Lines, actually. And I took Laura Bernasconi's class and I didn't know Laura then. I just, and I just signed up because it was like probably intermediate ballet or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Like, and then, and one thing I found about the Bay Area is that people, people tend to be very open. So if you show up in their class and they haven't seen you before, they, they ask you your name. They ask you where you came from. And I remember she was like, oh, like, I really want to make peace on you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then, and then she said, so on Saturday, go take Enrico's class and then meet me after. So on Saturday I showed up, I took Enrico's class. I also didn't know him then. And like, and then I waited for Laura and Laura didn't show up. And, but, but, you know, I knew she had been, she had some relationship with Rico. I can't remember what, but like, I remember like, this, this goes back to like sort of the dumb determination thing. I, I, I waited for her for like two hours thinking, well, you know, she might be delayed. I, she said she's going to meet me. But at the time I was like, well, I don't even have her phone number. And I remember like, it was kind of a weird situation because I don't recall usually when I danced with Rico, we did class and then like almost immediately rolled into rehearsal. But for some reason there was that pause in between. So um, he and the other dancers had maybe gone out and gotten lunch or done something, but they were all coming back. And then I remember, like, I was just like, um, do you have Laura's number? Because I think I was supposed to meet her, but I, like, don't have her phone number. I've just been waiting. <laughs> and, and then he gave me her number. I couldn't reach her. 
And I was like, well, it looks like you're going to have rehearsal right now. Is it okay if I just watch? And he said to me like, well, why would you just watch? And so like, well, that's Enrico, huh? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And so, so um, he was working in Carmina then. He was just starting Carmina Verona. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like in the room with these dancers. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I ended up never like so far that dance with Laura has never happened, but like, and you know, for several weeks it was like the, oh, should I stay for rehearsal or not? And it was always kind of my choice. And like with Carmina too, that was like, not, I don't think I, I did not. And I, and I performed many of the works in progress, but I didn't perform the final show. So those are very interesting times. I certainly remember that dynamic at that time. Enrico and I shared dancers. Oh, that's right. Cause Lena was in there. Yeah. And, and oh, and Allison. Yeah. And Allison. Uh, so, it, and I, uh, Karen, Karen Myers was part of that group. Where I, oh, I didn't know that Karen danced with you. Yeah, she did. But uh, it, it was an interesting time. And often, you know, right after his class on Saturdays, they would have that three hour rehearsal. Yeah, it was intense. It was like Saturday and Sunday, <laughs> both days. And like. So, um, did you learn quite a bit working with Enrico? Oh, not so much. Um, how, how did it affect the way that you approached dance and approached. Uh, I mean, like, well, first of all, you have to understand, I was always like sort of in the back corner of Enrico's work. Like, I wasn't really like, uh, so for me, like, first, and this has been true not only of Enrico, but like of, of many other um, choreographers I've worked with since, like, I feel like every single person has so much to teach. I learned something from every process, even if it was not always pleasant. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I did everything wrong. I was like really not like I was not good at staying in line, which as the person in the back, it's kind of your job to stay in the line. Um, I was not good at remembering choreography. I'm still not. <laughs> but like, you know, if you've ever been in the room when Rico's creating choreography, he teaches fast. It comes out of him very quickly. Someone like Leda Pennell, who you mentioned was just like lightning and picking up those things. And I would be struggling like weeks later to be like, what are we doing? When are we doing it? There's yeah. a lot less improvisation with Enrico as well. Than that's, uh, that's true. But like going into that situation and wanting very much to be like, like, like the other people in the room who I admired so much, it was, it was stressful. It was hard. I don't think I ever pleased anybody, but I think also working with a small company like that. And also with the particular dancers that Rico tended to have, like it gave me a lot of time to really watch much better dancers at work <laughs> and like watch what they put into their work, like watching Diani, watching Victor Teatos, watching, watching everybody back then. I was really watching a lot, especially because like, you know, I didn't have the solos. So I had a lot of time to watch and like watching how they did what they did. I, I would take pic pictures of them. Yeah, I remember that time being really about acquiring a kind of discipline I didn't yet have and acquiring technique that I didn't have yet. Well, knowing all these dancers, they're very generous people in general. So I'm sure that they shared a lot of their knowledge with you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and also we were a very tight set, which partly because of the intensity of what we were doing. So you were working with Enrico. At some point, you started do, uh, making your own work. Did you do that before you came to San Francisco or did you start in San Francisco? 
Not, um, well, it's kind of weird because I, I would say that like, it's not that I never choreographed anything because I think most people who dance make dances at some point. I probably first started really understanding that I could make dances in the context of working with Diane and Wei in Kinetech because we were making a lot of our own material to dance. Um, but it was always within a framework, right? Like it was always within the framework that Diani would give or that way with the technology that would present a scenario and like we would be responding to that. Um, I wasn't like in any sense creating like an evening length piece or, you know, at most I might do is, the most I might do is like, I made my solo that I dance. But after moving, so I moved to Chicago in 2015, end of 2015. And I was also like not in a good state back then. So I, you might not have seen much of me in 2015 because I didn't like, I had a little, maybe depression is probably a good way to put it. So I, I wasn't dancing a lot that year at all. What I think of as my first independent work, even though I had like nominally made dances before that, was actually coming out of that time. I was making this duet with somebody that I, I knew. We would just like rehearse it in my apartment. <laughs> like we didn't have studio space or anything. And it wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be creating anything. And also at the time I was really like, you know, he, I remember he said at the very beginning, his name is Dimitri Peskov. He said at the very beginning, like, okay, are you going to be okay with like, I'm going to choreograph and you'll just be a dancer. And I was like, yeah, why would I care? Or like at the time I was like, of course, because that's how I thought of myself anyway. I certainly had no identity as a choreographer. And it was like, we just rehearsed for one hour a week. And I remember like at the time, that was the only time that I felt that I knew what to do. Like... I was really not in good, a good mental state at all, but like for one hour, my brain could be quiet and it became very clear. So like without intending to, I ended up creating a lot of what we were doing and we performed that piece. It was only like five minutes of choreography and um, I was going to perform it at the Hyde Park Salon, which is um, something hosted by two physics professors here, but it was a somewhat athletic duet and we wanted to perform it right at the beginning because it was like five minutes, fairly athletic. So we could be warm because a lot of salon is sitting through like a 30 minute presentation or 30 minute performance, or um, in this case, a 30 minute film. Like, I was just like, can we just go before the film? And I remember the curator of the event, she said, no. So and I was like, and it, like, it didn't make any sense to me. So I was like, well, you know, maybe we could just do it as kind of a pre, like, I was still like, okay, I, I think we need to go first because our bodies are not going to be able to handle um, doing this work later, which if you're not a dancer, you won't really understand what that means. So um, I decided instead that we would do like a pre-show. So it would like not officially be on the program and it wouldn't be in the official performance space, which was upstairs of their house, but it would be like downstairs in the living room near the entryway of the building. And like, you know, it was, it, Salon is a very nice event that obviously it hasn't happened for a few years because of the pandemic, but like uh, Sydney and Yankee Kim host this event um, and they always buy pizzas and they ask people to bring a bottle of wine. And so people start showing up about 7.30 to like eat and drink before the performances begin at eight. So I was like, okay, well, we'll just perform like between 7.30 and eight, like in the downstairs area. And I thought at the time, well, we could, we'll just do it there. Like we won't call attention to ourselves, but it was right by the entrance so people would see it. And I'm sorry, this is all getting very long. <laughs> like, 
but and I put um, as a score on the music stand, enter and leave as you wish. Recording is allowed. Feel free to participate. Because I was thinking, okay, well, maybe we'll just have like one or two people at a time in the room with us. And like, it'd be cool if like it were more of an interactive piece or something. I don't know what I was thinking at the time, actually. And we, so we worked on, we performed that piece um, using the five minutes of choreography to riff off of, basically. And it ended up, not by my intention, but like people would see us dancing and they would come in and they would sit down. So um, it wound up being much more of a traditional performance than I was expecting it to be. It also wound up being like 90 minutes long instead of 30 minutes long. So people were not pleased with me, (laughs) but that was not what I intended to do at all. But I think the day after we performed that piece, I went to the Smart Museum of Art Um, And I saw this exhibition called Monster Roster, and it is artworks by, I think, uh, primarily by Leon Golub and also by um, other Chicago artists at the time. It was like just after World War II. Um, And they were painting all these like really distressed figures, like they were monsters, basically monstrous figures, huge canvases. I found them extremely beautiful in a way that was like not, not beautiful like a human, but for that reason, like seeing that I think brought a great to what I wanted to do, which was first the dance that I was making um, with Dimitri was not really about like any of the things that duets are usually about, (laughs) or like it it was, it was a tense, it wound up being a somewhat tense relationship just because like, I was not supposed to be choreographing anything. The whole performance situation was very tense. Um, We only performed that piece one time. And, but when I saw the exhibition was smart, I thought, oh, like actually the gallery provides like a lot of the viewing conditions that I was imagining people would have when they encountered this performance in the living room, because it's very natural when you go into an art gallery space that like you're kind of on your own time, you explore as you want to, you decide for yourself when you're done looking. And like also the content of the of the work really spoke to me and spoke to like sort of the feelings that I had both being extremely depressed and having had this like sort of combative relationship with somebody that I was trying to create something with, but who actually, yeah. So I was like, oh, you know, this dance belongs in this gallery here. And I remember I went to the front desk that day and I was like, hey, um, if I wanted to do a performance in the gallery, like how would I do it? And I remember like there was a student working at, because the SMART is the University of Chicago Museum, um, Art Museum. And I remember the student at the time was just like, oh, well, you can talk to this guy, Eric Peterson. He works here. He like does all the programming. So he gave me the email address and I wrote to him. And like, that was how that got started. But in the end, like none of the things that I had imagined would happen in that gallery ended up happening. Like the duet that we had created was just sort of, we created it, we performed it once, we like... I won't say never spoke to each other again, but like we definitely did not dance with each other ever again. And I remember distinctly thinking as that project was unfolding, which had its had a lot of twists and turns, which we definitely don't have time to get into. Like, I remember thinking at that time, like, I guess I'm just going to like do this right now because <laughs> because I because like Diani's not going to make the dance for me anymore because I'm over here. Like it was it was very much a like, well, you know, if. If I had stayed in San Francisco, I would have just happily been in other people's work forever, maybe. Well, we'll step back a little bit, you know, okay. take a step yeah. back and, and uh, talk about the difference between the dance 
community in San Francisco and the dance scene in Chicago. Is, is there a dance community in Chicago? I thought it was more of a theater town. Um, it is. It is a great theater town. There is a large dance community here. I, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this because like, I really think like there. So there are many things that I miss very much about the San Francisco dance scene, including that it genuinely felt like a community to me. I, I hope that's still true. But actually, I know it to be true because when I came to Lines, I came to Lines, um, I was visiting over Christmas and I took Sandra Chin's class at Lines and I walked in the door and I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't been at Lines in three years. And like five people came and hugged me. And I was like, I can't believe you remember me. Or like, and of course I was like, but of course I remember all of you. <laughs> like, it was such a sweet moment for me. Well, the community is not as cohesive in Chicago as it is in San Francisco. Yeah, okay, that's a good way to put it. Here? It's, it's not as cohesive, but also I think um, one thing that I really loved about San Francisco, and I think this speaks to the kind of work that gets made there, is that because people, like you mentioned, sharing dancers with Enrico, like people dance together, people take class together, um, people go to each other's shows, lots of people share dancers because I think the reality of most dance is that you're not going to work with one person your whole life. And there are few, there are few dance jobs that like actually pay enough for anyone to live, if anything. That like there was not just a mixing of dancers, but a mixing of genres in a way that like I don't see as often in Chicago. I feel like the communities, I would call um, it communities plural here, where like because of the kinds of things that I do. And because I still go to ballet class, like I'll tend to be in class with a lot of people who do more like traditional work or like concert-based work, technical work, even though my own work, I would say, is not any of those things anymore. And the people who are doing more experimental work, like it's a completely different set of people. Like there's a very pretty strong like Bhutto community here. I think the people who do concert dance like really do concert dance. Whereas in San Francisco, I had much more of the feeling of like, oh, we're all dancers. Does that make sense? That makes a great deal of sense. Makes a great deal of sense. You know, you, you had the uh, Gus Giordano and the jazz group yeah. there. Certainly the concert people. It seems like the concert people and the performance art people are entirely different sets of folks there. Totally. That's exactly how I would describe it. Whereas it's it's sort of like we're yeah, it's sort of all one community in, in San Francisco. I think like you know, obviously some people lean more or less towards you know what they're doing, but like the divisions are not quite. You can be more than one thing. I think I think that's something that's not just true of San Francisco dance, but of like San Francisco generally. The hybridity of people is much more appreciated. Well, tell me about the kind of work you're making today. I understand it is mostly site specific. Um, a lot of it is site specific. A lot of it, a lot of it is actually um, inspired by visual arts, which I always was someone who loved to spend time in museums. And like since the time of being sort of obsessed with the monster roster, I've also been just interested in the space, the viewing conditions, also the people um, who work at 
who attend these places? What is it like? And also, what is it? What is this event which occurs one time or that that depends so much on a human body doing next to this work that is compared to a human life usually considered something like immortal, which is false because everything that's material and everything, period, will change, decay. Does the artwork that you're doing in these museum spaces, do they attach directly to the pieces that are in there? Or is it the fact that you're doing a space or doing like a piece in a space that is not a theater at the point? Uh, I would say both contribute to the point. I don't know if, I don't know if there is a point to my work. <laughs> usually, usually it's like, it's, it's not like every single work of art is going to inspire a dance in me. That's simply not true. But I feel like, because I spend a lot of time and I also like, I wouldn't even say I'm a photographer, but I take a lot of pictures like everybody else. I take a lot of pictures. So I spend a lot of time looking at things. I mean, I feel like observation in both my writing and dancing is like central to like the practice of what I'm doing and also to my learning process. But a lot of it, okay, I, I don't know if I can say like one overarching thing. Like sometimes I'm very interested in the content of the artwork. Sometimes I'm very interested in the material of the artwork. Sometimes I'm simply motivated by a desire to touch the artwork, which in a museum is never, it's not never allowed. It is sometimes allowed. And that part is very confusing too, because like in these situations where you are permitted to touch the art, like under what conditions can you touch the art? And that leads me to like social behaviors and you know rules and laws and how are they imposed and who enforces and why are they enforced upon us and like what is the boundary of that rule how can you be following a rule but like breaking that rule so it's a little it's <laughs> thank you for asking me because it's i hadn't really thought about it in this 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 way before but like they're all ways of thinking but also sometimes it's just like pure visceral pleasure in like, in the same way, like sometimes you see a color and you just really like it. Sometimes I see a painting and I just really like it. And then I look like, then figuring out like, why do I like it? What is it about this art that I like? Or like, what is the story behind this piece? How was this piece created? Um, I recently did a piece, it ended up being a video piece. And through the pandemic, I think like many dancers or people who make dances, like I've been making work for the screen rather than for the stage or for a space. And like that too is a different thing, not something I would have necessarily thought I was going to do, but now something I've learned about by doing. But it was a piece, it's a piece called Translated Vase. And it's inspired by a work of art in the Smart Museum's permanent collection called Translated Vase, obviously, um, by a Korean artist named Yisukyong. And she uses kintsugi, which is a technique Japanese technique for repairing broken pottery. Um, and you might've seen it in photos or maybe even in real life where um, instead of simply just gluing the parts together, um, the seams of the piece are highlighted in gold. And I think what's fantastic about Yusuf Young's work is that she's not merely repairing the break, um, but she's creating entirely new structures 
out of broken parts. So this this is the piece that I ended up making. It's actually a piece I first saw. I, I always view it in the context of that monster roster show, not because it was part of the monster roster show, but because it was like displayed elsewhere in the museum at the same time. So whenever I would go there and I went there every day, um, I would also see this, this work of art. And I've seen it come out lots of times. Like it's often just seen independently because like it's clearly a contemporary where it has reference to Ming Dynasty ceramics or porcelain. It's not actually made of porcelain. It's made of pottery. So there's something about it that's kind of, that's very interesting to me from the point of view of construction. And also like the story that Yusuf Kyung tells about, tells about these broken pieces is that like these pots were pots that were deliberately broken by their makers because they were considered imperfect. So she kind of scavenged the parts and like created something else out of them. For me as an Asian American, getting to see it also seeing like pottery that looks Chinese using this Japanese technique done by a Korean artist. And I, I think she's like, a Korean national. So she probably would not think of herself as, as Asian American or American at all. It does make me think about like categories, uh, com combination, and again, the hybrid form that we get in the US and in San Francisco of creating. So, um, and also the time that it was coming out recently, which was this past February, I think it was coming out because, have you heard of Phil Chan's work? Oh, he, oh well, he's pretty amazing. You should talk with him. Um, he's he's the one of the co-founders of this organization, which is also now a book called Final Bow for Yellowface. Uh, yes, I've heard of the uh, book. Yeah. So, so he's, he's, his work is all about combating um, stereotypes about Asians in usually classical dance. I think he's pretty much worked with opera, with ballet, mostly ballet. Um, and he choreographed his a ballet himself called um, Ballet de Porcelain. Well, there's definitely a lot of cringy stuff in uh, classical ballet as far as, as far as the uh, image of Asian people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it's his work is long overdue. So, and I, but it's so important because it's because it's been done for so long. People just sort of take it, or like they assume it to be just like traditional or like part of specifically the Nutcracker. He began working this work because he was invited by Peter Martins, who was then artistic director of New York City Ballet, to like sort of help them revise or tone down stereotypes in the Chinese variation. Yeah, speaking of. A cringy piece of work is that, oh my gosh. that, that section. It's so I, I get, you know, being African American, I don't relate to it as much as uh, someone who's Asian would, but I even see things in there and I say, my goodness, this is no. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't think you have to be Asian to feel that, right? Like, I don't know. There are moments where you just, yeah, but thank you for feeling it. <laughs> because I feel like, because like anyone who's not whatever ballet has decided mainstream is like is excluded you really see an asian person dancing that role too i know and that's the, what's crazy about it right <laughs> or or they're forced to dance this role and it's terrible for them yeah. because like they're still dancing a white fantasy of what asian people are like and yeah, actually, I, I guess we can also ask the uh, arab if they think of arabian oh my god it's terrible so it's it, it there's a lot there's a well that's a, that's a whole another subject that's a 
another hour-long podcast is just where some of these things come from. <laughs> sure. But, uh, anyway, I, I, I interrupted. So yeah. I wanted to let you finish your point about uh, the work of Phil Chan and how it works, how it's inspired your own work as well. Oh, well, I mean, at this at that point, actually, I'd not even met, I'd not met Phil's, Phil in person, but I knew that he was choreographing this ballet and it was touring to the University of Chicago and sort of as a companion exhibition to his bringing this this Baroque, well, the music is Baroque, the choreography was originally lost. Um, he created a new narrative, casting Asians as the heroes rather than the villains of the story and commenting on the porcelain trade, which is, this is a very long story in itself, but like, I guess, and the relationship it's set up between Europe and China. Seeing this piece come out, for me, I was like, oh, this is like, an opportunity for me to think about this work of art that I find so fascinating and beautiful and also think about it, it in this particular context of material, which is porcelain and Asian American identity and performance. And the, like this entire context was basically created because Phil was bringing his ballet here. And so, yeah, I wound up, I had originally hoped this would be a live performance it ended up being a video performance, which the nice part is you can watch it. <laughs> but, but like, I was very curious, instead of creating something that would be like a narrative or that would uh, incorporate like the technical aspects of ballet at all, thinking more as an improviser and thinking, I guess, as someone who lives right now, not thinking about the past, I wound up creating a video work um, and also I thought there was kind of a funny pun. No one is going to get this. I told Phil, he laughed, but probably no one else is ever going to get this. Phil's dance was Baroque dance. And so I wanted to work with a break dancer <laughs> in this project. So I ended up doing a duet, actually the first duet that I have made since that one that I mentioned with Dimitri. Now you mentioned Baroque dance. You mean 17th century French style dancing? I mean, to be absolutely clear Phil's work is contemporary work but he did use Baroque vocabulary in mm. his dance and the music was Baroque certainly and yeah. like I think a lot of the conventions he was referencing were to Baroque conventions of dance although he incorporated uh, actually some uh Chinese folk with the fan and the dancers were all dancers with New York City Ballet now so I would say they're contemporary ballet dancers um well, I don't know. I don't know how to describe dancers in the New York City Ballet. Neoclassical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. neoclassical is good. Yeah. I, I think there, there are so many. I mean, I think all of ballet now is neoclassical. As far as not, not, the, uh, not the pieces themselves, not the performances themselves, but the, the training. I think yeah. the ballet dancers look different now than they looked 40 years ago. Oh, I have no doubt that that's true. And also, like... Even thinking about Enrico, working with Enrico, he referred to his company as ballet company, which like whenever I try to explain what I was doing dancing in his company, like I always have to be like, but I'm not a ballet dancer. Like I know you, well, it's not true that none of his, some of his works did incorporate like point work. I never danced those parts. Yeah. So, but thinking about that, like, is it ballet? Is it not ballet? Well, you know, to modernize it, 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 what Enrico does, what Lines Ballet does, what Complexion yeah, does, are all 
ballet. Also, I didn't mention this, but like, I think one sort of pivotal thing in my dance training besides dancing with Enrico was I, I lived in Taiwan in 2012 um, and I was studying with Cloudgate Dance Theater then. And I remember having a conversation with the associate director at one point and she was like, well, you know, 20 years ago, like we would have been very interested in a dancer like you, but you're really very Western. She said that to me, which was kind of a heartbreaking thing for me. Definitely a Western person, but also an Asian American person, Asian person to hear like, oh my God, you are so Western. Um, because she, she's, because Ling Huaming, um, the director and founder of Cloudgate, actually began dancing also as an adult um, in the U.S. So he came to study at the Iowa Writers Workshop. He was going, I think he had already published a book. Then so he was studying creative writing and somehow he got exposed to modern dance. So he just went crazy for it. And he moved to New York and studied with Martha Graham. And then he went back to Taiwan um, and wanted to start his own dance company because back then Taiwan, I guess, didn't have a modern dance company. So his early work was like technically, maybe even visually, like based on American modern dance. And over the years, it evolved to like incorporate Asian martial arts. So the, the, new, the current work, at least the work towards the end of his career was like not recognizable at all as Western. So it seems like he had an evolution. Like you're going through your own evolution as well. So, I mean, how do you see your work changing, you know, from the time that you are starting out, maybe late period San Francisco into Chicago and looking toward the future? This is a good question. I don't know what, I guess when I started, I just really wanted to fit in. (laughs) I think like I really wanted to, to be classical. And also when I started dancing with Enrica, that was all choreography. I didn't make up any of it. And yeah, I think it's, it's been like a gradual process and not always chosen by me of like learning what I can do and learning what, I I don't know that I'm like the best person to even talk to about this. Like so much of it has been situational. Like, I'm not sure I would have started working in museums if I hadn't seen that show immediately after that performance, I'm not sure if I would have been able to improvise that performance, except that I learned how to improvise dancing with Diane Hanway. And I don't know that I would have made a turn into making digital work or video work, except that everyone had to during the pandemic. And so I think it's an ongoing dialogue of like everything I know with everything that I'm that's around me right now, everything I don't know also. So I think it like whatever happened next happens next will be very much shaped by what presents itself. Well, let's hope that great things present themselves for you, Irene. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you again next time you're in San Francisco. Please look me up. And I'm looking forward to seeing what your work in Chicago evolves to. We're going to be watching you. Oh, my gosh. it's It was so nice to have this conversation with you, Jamie. Like. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care and we will see you soon. I hope so. Take care. Thank you for listening today. Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. 
We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.